Marketers, the age of the customer has arrived and Salesforce is with you for every step of your customer's journey with your brand. Blaze trails across your entire business to create one connected customer experience. With Salesforce, be smarter and more predictive with your marketing using an intelligent platform that integrates marketing with sales, service, and commerce by engaging your customers on any device and channel in real time. Learn more at salesforce.com money. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. They make a dollar, I make a dime. That's why I always poop on company time. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking, dude? Good, man. I'm uh, Today, I'm drinking some truck stop fiesta coffee. Oh, coffee, okay. I was, it was a long, late night last night. Um, yeah? Yeah. Were you guys out somewhere? We, uh, we were at family dinner. Uh, actually, my sister just got engaged, so we were, we were celebrating. Congratulations to your sister. That, and thank I guess you, you on behalf of my sister. I to go to soon. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if it was like, am I supposed to say congratulations to you or just like, I don't know. Yeah, like I think it's just weird anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just drinking water because though I have two gallons of mead downstairs, it's 10 a.m. Mm. So uh, that will have to wait several hours, <laughs> but it's very tasty meat. My girlfriend, I think I told you this off air. My girlfriend drove two hours or three hours up to Minnesota to get it. That's because they, they only sell it off after the end of the Renaissance Fair season. And you said like the whole deal was as long as you bring the containers, they'll just fill you up. Yes. And then you can pay for it by the pint or gallon or whatever, whatever measurement they use. So pretty good deal. I think she paid like 60 bucks for two, two gallons of meat almost. Damn. So not a bad deal, especially with how tasty it is. So that should last us a while. But anyway, our catchphrase this, this morning, I guess for me, uh, comes from Todd via email. So thank you, Todd, for that catchphrase. And I feel like we haven't said this enough, but you can tweet us over at, at money matters, man on Twitter or email us. <laughs> If you have catchphrases that you want us to read on the show, the really, really dumb ones, I'll leave for Andrew to read, mm. but some of them I'll read as well. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to say, like, we, we haven't mentioned this much, but we really think that you should poop while you're in the office because if you're doing it anyways, you should get paid. Right? It's just efficient, right? Yeah. Dude, when you're on salary, you're not getting extra money for extra work. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for some people, it's work, you know, to anyways. That's true. Some people on. probably have to work via their phone. Mm. Anyway, yeah. So today we're, we're going to tackle a topic that I have been really interested in, and I think we've mentioned the show a few times, but haven't really dug into yet. So I'm pretty excited because we're going to talk about behavioral finance. And our guest on the show today is Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is a clinical psychologist, a behavioral finance expert, and the author of um, very unrelated books. But one of them is all about behavioral finance. It's called The Laws of Wealth. So Daniel, how's it going? I'm great, man. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing this morning? Real good. Just finished my fourth uh, Diet Coke of the morning, so that's what I'm drinking. Your fourth? Fourth, dude. I'm f I'm good for four every day before lunch. Yep. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's oh true. I'm from, I'm, from, I'm from Atlanta, just keeping the local economy propped up. <laughs> Is that a thing in Atlanta, just like drink Diet Coke all day long? Yeah, it's like drinking wine in Sonoma. Just enjoying a Diet Coke in Atlanta is a transcendent experience, yes. <laughs> so it starts well, with cool. bacon, eggs, and Diet Coke in the morning. And then... <laughs> Biscuits, gravy, and Diet Coke. And this is why the South is the healthiest part of the country. <laughs> oh, yes. 
I, I am excited to go to the South. I'm going to Charleston in, I think, a month. And I'm going to eat all the shrimp and grits. They will run out. So I'm pretty stoked for that. And then I'm going to be in Atlanta in February. So do you live in Atlanta? I do. Awesome. I think Andrew said you were from the UK. Did you used to live there? Or? No, I was, I was, I was, I was, I'm from Alabama, which is kind of like the UK, <laughs> but I grew, grew up in Alabama, uh, live, uh, live in Atlanta. And now I was in Ireland, I think earlier, which is why we couldn't do a podcast, but yeah, oh, okay. I'm, so I'm from, from the dirty South though. Gotcha. You, your book, the laws of wealth, um, it's published by quote, UK's leading independent publisher of finance, trading, and investment books. So this this is correct. Yeah, it's a it's a UK publisher. That's I guess another tie. But yeah, no, oh, from, from the American South. Yeah. Okay. And did you originally go for a UK publisher, or did you shop it around to some American ones and finally decide on this one? So it, I wish I had a better story. My last book was published with Wiley and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were great to work with as well, but just got a better deal from a UK publisher who was aware of my last book and aware of some of the writing I do online, blogging and other things. Uh, so yeah, I just really enjoyed them. And I was duped into thinking they were super intelligent by their funny accents. And I think I went with them because of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting. So, Daniel, I want to talk about the book, but I'm I'm really interested. When you say you got a better deal, can you like give me an idea of like what a book deal looks like seven figure dances it looks so it looks so crummy like i mean i I make a pretty good living but it has nothing to do with writing books i mean that's what i do um because i love it just for the Mm -hmm. love of the game because Mm -hmm. it's pit i mean it's pitiful um yeah it's just terrible i mean it does it does uh it does set up, uh, you know, lucrative speaking engagements, and I'm an asset manager, yeah. and so you know, it points people towards my asset management business. But um, yeah, I mean, the book sales themselves—it's a total loss leader to just build your reputation in the industry, and it, it does that nicely. But no, it's pitiful. I get my I get my checks, and I take my family out for dinner, and that's all she wrote. So um, it's weak. What I've heard is that a, a book, at least a business book or some sort of nonfiction instructional book is uh, really just kind of a ticket to charging more as a speaker. Absolutely. In terms yes. of, in terms of the, your, your money-making potential, at least. Yeah. I mean, my last book was a New York Times bestseller, and I didn't make much money off of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you really have to be Harry Potter uh, to, to make real, real money off of selling books. And he's not even yeah. real, so. He's not, that's the thing. <laughs> wait, so wait, what are you telling me here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, did I ruin it? <laughs> I know, I've got, I've got a lot to think about now. I just learned they're doing five new movies that's a money machine Mm, yeah it is i i am i basically like the moment i heard that i just pictured some i don't know business magnate with a cigar just talking (laughs) with jk rowling and being like you have an idea for one new book how about five new books Hmm? (laughs) 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 anyway so Let's dig into what behavioral finance is, because we've mentioned it on the show a couple of times. And I think my understanding of it, um, if I were to boil it down, basically is that humans are very bad at making good financial decisions. So my my entire conception of behavioral finance and how to use it to my advantage is take my behavior out of the equation and set up robotic systems that do it all for me. Um, but I'm curious to know what your kind of definition is and what you build your foundation on. 
Yeah, I think most, you know, I think highest level, you're, you're right on. I mean, a lot of economic and financial decision-making models uh, uh, in the academic literature were built on faulty assumptions about how rational or uh, self, self-serving or self-maximizing uh, uh, mm. rational people were. They were built to make simple mathematical models but didn't really reflect reality. So behavioral finance is just trying to reintegrate the messiness of humankind into, into the math around how best to invest. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the laws of wealth and in my own uh, business, I really approach it from two different directions. And there's a part one and a part two to the book, but the, you know, sort of one piece of what I do is help people uh, make better planning and financial decisions, just sort of the blocking and tackling of planning and executing a financial life. Um, that's probably more what you were speaking of. But mm-hmm. the, second, the second way that's discussed in part two of the book is there's actually ways that because people make these fear-based, greed-based, consistently irrational choices, there are actually ways that you can take advantage of that when selecting uh, stocks, say. And so the second mm-hmm. part of the book is about how can we you know, be better at selecting stocks, creating portfolios, because people make predictably bad decisions. So there's really two pieces to it as I see it. So part one is really mitigate your own problems, and then part two is kind of like exploit the general nature of humanity for your gain almost. Wow, you made me sound like a really, (laughs) really crap crap on your fellow man for fun and profit. I'm just Machiavellian a little bit, you know? Uh, That's our catchphrase (laughs) for the next episode. Crap on your fellow man. Crap fun. on your fellow man. <laughs> With listen, money matters. It's also scat- it's so scatological today. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I I think uh, part one is the one that sounds maybe a little bit less Machiavellian. So let's dig into that. What what are kind of your tenets here? Because I know you have like you have ten rules of wealth building that you lay out in your book. Yeah, um, we can touch on as many as you'd like. So the first, the first is you control what matters most, and this mm-hmm. is something that I think is really not understood by most retail investors. Um, all of the research into behavioral finance shows uh, that say over the last thirty years, the American stock market's given you about eight and a quarter percent annualized over the last thirty years, but the average investor in the stock market has only held on to about four percent of that. Uh, because of when they choose to get in and get out of the market. And mm-hmm. so um, this is a big problem. And most people think their ability to achieve or, or not achieve their financial goals over an investment lifetime has to do with stuff like, am I picking the best mutual funds? What's Janet Yellen going to do? Uh, whatever. Uh, but I just want to sort of take the power back in that very first chapter and say, look, really boring stuff. Like, are you setting aside money each month? Are you starting early? Are you maintaining a long-term focus? Your decisions, your behavior around this sort of meat and potatoes boring stuff is a far better predictor uh, of whether or not you reach your financial goals than what the Fed does or the kind of environment that you get over your investment lifetime. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, I often think about how, how kind of broken my brain is in terms of making rational decisions and so part of part of my focus is trying to set up systems that kind of get rid of those decisions for me. And I'm guessing that's that's probably what your overall recommendation is, right? 
Yeah, that is. I mean, that's what I talk about in what we'll call the Machiavellian part two. You know, the mm-hmm. way that I the way that I manage money. Um, one one of the things that I emphasize is exactly what you talked about. Uh, that expert discretion is beaten handily by simple rules. And I cite uh, in that second part, I cite a meta analysis. So that's a a study of all the studies. Mm-hmm. So there's a study a study of over two hundred studies on how often PhD level uh, choices are beaten by simple rules of thumb. And so uh, it covers everything from prison recidivism studies to medical studies to stock picking. Uh, but this meta-analysis found that 94% of the time, uh, simple rules beat or equal an expert and, of course, do so at a fraction of the cost. And so, yeah, yeah um, I, I absolutely uh, run my own show that way. I liked your story about, and uh, I think it was, it might have been the forward of your book or early on, about um, some disease in Africa that can't be cured, but they basically stopped it just through a, a small rule of, you know, if people have it, don't bathe in the same water that other people that that don't that people who don't have it have, and that basically just stopped the disease altogether. So yeah. that was cool to read about. Yeah, it's a cool. It's the story of guinea worms, and it was actually right. uh, it was the story of guinea worms, and it was actually. It's the first time in human history that we've eradicated a disease for which there is no cure. So usually when you talk about a disease going away, it's because we've developed a vaccination for it or, you know, some, or there's a pill for it. Uh, but this is a disease that was debilitating large swaths of Africa um, that was eradicated by researchers in, in Atlanta. What, what? Um, <laughs> by, <Nice. laughs> uh, by uh, you know, just managing human behavior. And I, the, the parallel that I draw is that, um, you know, we're going to have bad behavior with us always. You know, the human irrationality uh, genome is not going anywhere. But by following a few simple rules, we can really mitigate the harm we do to our financial lives. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd like to dig into sort of the psychology side of it, because when I think about it, the application of simple rules makes sense. It seems rational, but then so many times it's not what my brain immediately gravitates to or thinks it's too boring. So really, why do people have such trouble following simple rules, even when the evidence is just like smacking in the face to tell them that it works? Yeah, there's there's a couple of reasons. And so uh, I have so many great stories to tell about this. You know, I, I was thinking about this recently. I was driving by, I was actually back home in Alabama, which is known for good health decisions. And I was back home and I was driving by a hospital. I um, mean, it's, you know, all the hospitals are not, no smoking now. And mm-hmm. so there's uh, 13 doctors and nurses out in front of the hospital smoking you know, in this sort of designated smoking area. And they're all there in their scrubs smoking. And I'm like, these people went to eight and 12 years of school um, to know just how bad smoking is. And here they sit making a really poor health decision. Uh, But, you know, we all do things like this. And that's why I, even Harry Markowitz, you know, sort of the pioneer of diversification, talked about multi-asset class investing, won a Nobel Prize for this really complicated work into how to optimize portfolios. And they asked him uh, when it, when his came to constructing his own portfolios, what did he do? And he said, well, I just put half in bonds and half in stocks. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's now, like, he was saying he, he did that just because he was 
lazy? Did he did he recognize his more complicated model as better, or was he did he actually believe that his personal investing strategy would do better? Oh, he's making fun of himself because he's like, here I am, you know, here I am mm-hmm. talking about mean variance optimization and how to create the perfect portfolio uh, to to balance the risk reward trade off, and then when it comes to me, I'm just like, eh. You know, give me some of that and some of that. Um, (laughs) You know, so this is something we all do, which is why I talk in chapter two, you know, the second sort of commandment there is you cannot do this alone Mm -hmm. um, because it's not enough to know. I mean, knowing is actually a very sort of weak form of influence. And so I cite research in chapter two that basically says you need to work with a financial professional uh, but not because they know anything about numbers, frankly, not because they're good at picking stocks, because the research suggests that they're not. I mean, mm-hmm. you need to work with a financial professional basically because people who work with financial professionals tend to do 3% better per year, the research suggests, which is dramatic over an mm-hmm. investment lifetime. Um, and they do so because they keep you from making a handful of stupid decisions over your lifetime. And it's really sort of counterintuitive. Most people think I'm going to go to a financial professional, uh, not for behavioral coaching, but because they're going to put me in some screaming stocks that are going to make me a ton of money. And yeah. that's not, not what the research says. So basically, you're paying your financial professional so that the day you call them and say, oh, the stock market is crashing, please sell and put it all into gold. He'll be like, nah. Let's wait. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, turn off, turn off, uh, turn off Glenn Beck and let's talk. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I, really I, I love stuff. that that like approach though because most people um, sell it the, in the complete opposite way. They're like, you you have to get you know a CPA sitting next to you because they have all the answers and you don't know shit. Right. Well, and you know the the financial services industry has done a very poor job of this. I mean, I think sort of phase one. Uh, you know, back in the early days, uh, a stockbroker, an advisor was a gatekeeper. Like you just couldn't do stuff with, without yeah. his or her help. You couldn't trade. Uh, now that's all been disintermediated. So sort of the next step was them saying, well, we're going to get you great big returns. Well, that hasn't worked out. Um, and so I think what we're finding now is there's a real benefit to working with an advisor, but it's just it's not what it's been marketed to be. And it's not what most people think. Uh, right. But a recent a recent Natixis study, I think, really puts a, a, a fine point on this. They ask financial professionals, you know, what's the biggest benefit that you add to your to your folks' lives? And eighty three percent of them says the best thing. Eighty three percent of them said the best thing that I can do is keep people from making poor decisions. Mm, right. <clears throat> but when they ask when they ask the clients of these advisors, hey, uh, do you need help? you know, sort of saving, being saved from yourself. And uh, do you need a behavioral coach? Only 6% said yes. So, um, really? Yeah. So I think the industry is coming around, but it hasn't been communicated or marketed to the end investor at all, really. I would be curious to know if you can actually market that value well, because we all think tell somebody. Even yeah, even if you tell somebody, you know, this is actually the best thing that a financial professional is going to do for you, you know, when you're comparing different financial professionals, how do they market themselves on that? Oh, I'm going to keep you from screwing up because you probably will. Like, you know, 6% of people are only 6% of people truly believe that they do need help from screwing up. 
And, you know, you're even telling me right now and my my there's a little voice in my brain being like, yeah, but you won't screw up Mm. because, you know, X, Y and Z. So you're special. And I think everyone does that. Yes. So you're you're playing right into my Machiavellian as we have established trap, right? So chapter mm-hmm. five, it, chapter five is you are not special, you know. And so I'm trying to really right. help, <laughs> really help people understand, and I I think you're absolutely right. It's a much less sexy sell to say, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to save you from yourself, and you have to overcome humankind's natural. Uh, uh, tendency towards overconfidence, which is dramatic and, yeah. and self-serving and actually does us a lot of good. Like, you know, if, if we weren't all a little bit overconfident, no one would ever start a business. Cause it's, mm. you know, uh, probabilistically speaking, it's a poor, it's a poor bet. You know, right. no one, no one would start a podcast because probabilistically speaking, no one's going to listen to it and it's going to flame out in a month, you know, and they don't um, make money. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, if I if I had been tuned into probability, I never would have talked to my wife because uh, you know odds were that she shouldn't have given me the time of day. So we're we're all sort of overconfident. So mm-hmm. it makes it a hard sell. So I, I absolutely agree. It's a hard sell for the advisory community. Yeah, I do sometimes think about the fact that if we all thought probabilistically, um, nothing would ever happen. Yeah. <laughs> if we just had like 100% AIs running everything, I, I don't think, I think they would just kind of keep things exactly the way they are. Yeah, you'd never, you wouldn't drive to the store. I mean, you, you it's like you, you wouldn't be scared to get on an airplane, but you'd be terrified to like go get milk, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So Daniel, you are, you have a PhD. Uh, you, you've literally written a book about behavioral finances. So you kind of like have positioned yourself as an authority, both in how people behave with their money and in psychology itself. How do you personally compensate for what you still probably know is your own overconfidence with your own investing? Yeah. So with my own asset management shop, it's all, uh, I have no discretion. You know, I built the models. So there's always going to be a human, uh, a human hand in there somewhere with the mm-hmm. accompanying, with, you know, with the accompanying bias and imperfection. Uh, but I allow myself no discretion. It's not like, uh, uh, some, some people run what they call quantumental, which is kind of a funny way to think about it, but sort of a mix of fundamentals and quantitative. Um, okay. and I, I run a totally quant shop uh, where I have no discretion. Um, So that's one way. And then in my own personal financial planning life, I work with an advisor. I mean, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm my, I'm myself, um, you know, securities licensed. I'm a financial advisor. Um, And I work, I, I pay a financial advisor, you know, thousands of dollars a year to keep me from making stupid mistakes. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. It's for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Our favorite from our first HelloFresh delivery was the smoky beef and poblano chili. Besides being incredibly delicious, it was really easy to make, even for me. Laura was impressed that I was able to do it, so I feel it's important to brag about it. Guys, I could finally feed myself now. They send a full-color recipe with detailed instructions. As someone who can't tell if a dish needs more salt, this made it really easy to cook something awesome. 
HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. All dinners are delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. Ours actually waited all day in the hallway while we were out and the ice packs kept everything nice and cool. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter LISTEN when you subscribe. As a business owner, you know you need access to capital to grow, but getting that capital can be a difficult task. That's where Cabbage comes in. Cabbage provides simple, flexible access to a line of credit for up to $100,000. Access your line of credit from a phone or computer. You'll get a decision in minutes and you can start using your funds immediately. There are no fees to set up your credit line and you only pay for what you take. Cabbage has helped 80,000 businesses with over $2 billion in funding. Go to cabbage.com slash business today and get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That is cabbage with a K dot com slash business. What is something that you've talked to your financial advisor about? I mean, because you know most of the fundamentals. So, so what, what's transpiring there? Well, I think, um, I think, uh, one thing that I talk to my financial advisor uh, a lot about is the stuff that I'm I'm less savvy on. I mean, no, I know a lot about investment management. Don't know a lot about what you'd maybe refer to as tax alpha. You know how to how to maximize tax strategies. You know, I'm I'm no Donald Trump in my ability to to get around these things. And so yeah, tax you know tax benefits, tax loss harvesting. Um, planning 529s for my kids, things like that stuff that I find less interesting, uh, but that Mm. he's very, um, you know, that he's very tuned into. Mm. And then frankly, just keeping me from, uh, you know, keeping me from making stupid decisions because, you know, a lot of what I talk about in the book is how most people should frankly unplug from this quite a bit. You know, there's, there's a, there's an inverse relationship, um, between how much, financial media people consume and the, and the type of returns they get. So, you know, people who are watching financial news media every day tend to get worse returns than people who ignore it altogether. Yeah. And I, and and I talk in the book about a fidelity study, a fidelity study where they were looking at the, uh, their best retail accounts and they wanted to determine what were the behaviors of their best performing retail accounts. They call all these people up and they found that the modal response, so the, the most frequently occurring response, was that these people had forgotten that they had an account with Fidelity altogether. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, you know, someone who's looking at it because I, because I manage other people's money, you know, someone who's looking at it every day and is deeply embedded in the financial news and financial markets, I'm in some ways uh, more prone to make stupid decisions with my own money and so have to use him to help keep me calm. That makes sense. So really, it's like the, the closer you are, the more skin you have in the game, the more important it is for you to be dispassionate. But but the, the paradox is the harder it is to be. Yeah, well, and, you know, you look at someone like me, like, you know, I've got my I've got my money in the market. Uh, and my career is in the market and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, all, all facets of my, I'm not very well diversified in some ways. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's easy for me to panic about, about, you know, scary markets because, 
you know, my books don't sell, my speaking dries up and then my accounts crash. So yeah, it's, I really need, I really need help, you know, even as someone who's written a couple of books about these things. It's crazy how, because I feel the same way, same way sometimes. Like, you can be really successful, you can build a diversified position, and yet we are human and we just constantly run scenarios through our heads where everything fails the exact same time. And I don't know. I don't know why we do that, but it does fascinate me. Yeah, well, sometimes it does all fail at the same time, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, it did, it did a few years ago, so I yeah. guess if if it's happened once right you know if you think about it rationally like you're even if your book doesn't sell very well for a month like you have the credentials you have the network you probably could take some different actions to get more speaking gigs or something you know or you know one part of the market crashes but it'll probably bounce back that kind of thing oh yeah this is the thing i always had to remind myself of because running a business there's probably like a time once a week where i'm like you know what i just have this feeling like this is the week where it all will completely (laughs) fail and i'll be on the street and eating fingernails for breakfast and i just have to like stop and realize like no you built skills that you could probably use to at least get another job or something you know it's it's not all as bad as it seems to be and just have to counteract that loss aversion fear yeah absolutely you know again the we um it's much easier for us to generate negative sort of catastrophic outcomes than it is to generate uh, really, really positive outcomes. I mean, our, our, we have sort of a lopsided risk preference by about 250%. And yeah. so, yeah, I, every entrepreneur has been there and I, I feel like I go through that daily. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah. I'm always overestimating everything. And I think like, yeah, you have to, to, to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even on the good side, I do. I know, like, with my business, probably you too, Andrew, uh, you'll get an idea in your head and be like, this is going to 5x my revenue in two months. And it's like, no, it's not. It's going to add a 7% increase over five months. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I think if you tell yourself that from the outside, it's not going to be as exciting. So maybe that little bit of overconfidence uh, is exactly what you need to spur the action. You need a little bit of a, a multiplier put in there. Yeah, you do. <laughs> So, uh, let's get into the Machiavellian stuff. Yeah. yeah. I know it sounds bad to some people, but uh, if if everyone listening to this were to ask themselves, honestly, do you want to beat the average performance? They're going to say yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the way you do that is, by, you know, one of the ways you do that is by finding pockets of disproportionate value, which are created by human behavior. So, it might sound bad if you use the word exploit, but it really is just smart investing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, uh, again, historical notions have said, you know, you need to take on more risk if you're going to ever increase your returns. That was sort of the traditional efficient market notion. And I mean, to be clear, there's something to that. I mean, right. part of why, part of why you know, part of why stocks pay five or six percent better than, than than other asset classes are, you know, is because they're more volatile, they're harder to hold. But mm-hmm. there's an uh, there is a a strong but imperfect relationship between risk and return. And I think what a behavioral investor does is, I mean, it's it's Warren Buffett stuff. I mean, so I mean, if you look at something like value investing, which is you know, the Ben Graham and Warren Buffett are sort of the well known value investors to to name a few. Mm-hmm. But that's really a, a behavioral principle underlies Warren Buffett's approach. You know, he's buying he's buying fifty cent dollars because he knows uh, that people 
are prone to a few things. Uh, one of those things is a tendency to conflate price with quality, right? So there's, right. A, stu- uh, there's a study that I talk about in the book uh, about people going into an fMRI machine, you know, measuring their brain activity, and then they feed them, they, they give them wine. Yeah. And, yeah, right? I read like, about this the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't mead, but, you know, that would have worked, too. <laughs> um, so, so they give them wine, and, and all it's the same wine in both conditions. All they vary is the, the cost. You know, they tell them, hey, the wine cost whatever, a, a buck versus, you know, 200 bucks or whatever the numbers were. Yeah. And so people, uh, people's enjoyment of the wine varies dramatically with their perception of how much it costs, even though it's the same stinking wine, right? And yeah. uh, this, the same is true of the stock market. You know, we know that cheap stocks are better. You know, we know that they tend to dramatically outperform uh, their, their more expensive counterparts. But at the very moment they become attractive, this little human impulse we have says this is a crummy stock uh, right when it gets attractive. So all, mm-hmm. I'm, all I'm trying to do is automate the process of buying cheap, high-quality stocks with a little momentum, also mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a psychological piece. And that's, that's I mean, it's, it's totally unsexy. That's all I'm doing. I'm just trying to buy cheap, high-quality stocks and hold on to them for a, a tax-efficient amount of time. Okay. And uh, we can definitely get more into that. I did want to say one thing about the wine study. I'm not sure if I read the same one that you read, but what really interested me is a couple of things. Uh, the first one is that they added a small amount of tannic acid to the more expensive wines to make them taste objectively worse. Hmm? Really? And, st- and still people decided to prefer them. And then at the end of the test, even when they were told they're all the same, uh, they were, I think people were asked like if you could take one or finish one and they always took the expensive one. That's wild. That's so crazy. It's like, yeah, you just get anchored to that price quality sort of ideal there. And it's very hard to let go. And I, I find my, myself dealing with that all the time, the, the uh, which, other. Why, which is why, like, you know, when they, they do like price tiers and online products, it's like it, it makes 100 percent sense to do it because. I, yeah, yeah, I, I had an experience early on in my speaking career. I was charging, I don't know, two, two or two or three thousand mm-hmm. dollars know, per, per appearance to go speak at these uh, functions for finance, you know, rubber chicken stuff for financial advisors. And um, I, I had this appearance in Salt Lake. I thought I had done very well. I get off the stage and I go speak to my sponsor, you know, who had brought me in. And he said, hey, uh, great job, but everyone thinks you suck. And I'm like, what? wait, what? You know, why does everyone think I suck? And he said, well, everyone at the home office, when they look at our price sheet of, you know, who they can hire to come speak at these events, people just mm. assume you suck because you're not charging enough. Um, and so, I mean, yeah. I, re- I really did uh, increase my prices by a multiple that day and my speaking business picked up. Um, it was a fun, it's a funny thing and it's kind of counterintuitive, but we really do pair mm-hmm. price and quality quite a bit. And that's one of those I think fundamental things to understand, it's one of those beautiful little hiccups in economics because in school you learn, you know, price and demand increase proportionately. So it's a higher price, there's, you know, less demand. But in that case, it's it's literally the opposite. There are certain little pockets where if you increase the price, the demand goes up and you make more, like way, way more. Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to define. Um, I will just be completely out in the open and say I don't know 
what a lot of them mean, and I think a lot of listeners may also not know. So you mentioned that your your asset management business was quantumental. Um, so what is the difference between fundamental and quant-based investing? Because I'm not even sure what those mean. So sorry, mine is totally quantitative. Some some oh, okay. others are some others are what's called quantumental, which is gotcha. sort of a which is sort of a stupid term, because quantitative. I mean, you get that part. The fundamental would be the more bottom up, um, you know, the more bottom up research where you look at the individual companies, you go out and meet the managers, you walk around the factory and kick the tires. You know, the sort of deeper deeper dive stuff than just looking at. Uh, spreadsheets, you know, which is more okay. the, the the hallmark of uh, quantitative investing, and so it would be sort of like quantitative versus qualitative research in some ways. But um, but yeah, so, so for some, quantitative, it's like you know the price was this yesterday, now it's lower, so it makes sense to buy. Or are you looking at valuations? Like you know, what are the kind of definitive factors that drive your decisions? Yeah, so I look at I look at five things, right? I look at and I call it my five P's. The first is I look at price, which is valuations. Uh, the second is I look at properties, which is quality. Uh, the third is I look at pitfalls, which is risks. You know, uh, do they have excessive debt? Um, uh, is the management turning over? I mean, are there sort of personnel problems? Um, the fourth P I look at is people, which is what are the insiders doing? Um, you know, that's that has to be publicly reported. So our key our key people in the know um, buying or selling shares of the company, you know, is the mm-hmm. CEO is the CEO herself buying or sh- selling shares of the company. And, and then the final P is push, which is, you know, what would be referred to more commonly as momentum. Um, there's a funny, funny thing. Again, it's a psychological thing. In, in the medium term, stocks tend to mean revert. So stocks that have done well over the last three to five years tend to do poorly over the next three to five years and stocks that have done poorly uh, over the next uh, over the past three to five years tend to do well um so you know the the cheap stocks get expensive and expensive stocks get cheap that's uh, but in the short term momentum tends to persist so stocks that have done well for the past six months tend to do well for another six months. Um, so there's this short-term momentum effect and a longer-term, you know, mean reversion, sort of the opposite of momentum, dismomentum, mm-hmm. if you will, effect. And so I look at those things. But I mean, basically, the big things I'm looking at are: uh, is it cheap? Uh, is it high quality? And it, and does it have a little bit of a catalyst? Um, yeah. Because because things can stay cheap for a very very long time. With that momentum bit, what uh, what drives the decision? Because it seems like there's almost um, you know an opposite effect there, where the the short term momentum would tell you that if it's going up, it's going to keep going up. So buy. But then, how, how do you collate that with the prediction that it's going to start slowing down or or declining? Well, I'm usually I'm usually holding stuff for a year. So if stuff okay. has you know if it's if it's already cheap, that means it's probably been going down uh, mm-hmm. in the in the medium term. And if it has momentum, you know, again, probabilistically true true in general, not true of anything in specific. Sadly, sometimes um, that it's going to tend to go up for the next six months to a year. So I'm okay. looking for stuff that's been sort of unnecessarily or sort of unjustly the uh, Pick, picked on and, and hated, mm-hmm. but I'm looking for attitudes to change. And that's, you know, that's sort of how I think about it. And so the momentum is my signal. And in a sense that attitudes are beginning to change, and this is going to start to 
to arc toward what I uh, perceive to be its true value. Yeah. So you mentioned that you personally have no discretion in this business. What does that translate to in terms of the actual systems and decisions that are made on a day-to-day basis? Are you physically clicking the buy button when a computer model tells you to, or is it all automated? Do you delegate it to other people? Oh, I mean, I have to hit buy and sell, but, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, again, I, I, I don't have any, uh, any choice about what I buy or sell. And, you know, I, I tell people this and I, I shouldn't, um, you know, sometimes people ask me what I'm holding and I don't, I don't honestly even know, um, okay. <laughs> because I, I, I don't want to know, you know, um, there's, uh, there's a study done by Joel Greenblatt, who's a billionaire hedge fund manager, uh, who's a big, uh, you know, behavioral finance thinker himself in his own way. Uh, and he, what he did, he has this, this magic formula book that you might've seen. And so what he does, he publishes for free his magic formula stocks and says, you know, every month, every day, even, Hey, here are my top 30 picks, mm-hmm. come and get it. Mm-hmm. And he offers people the ability to have him manage it or to have them uh, sort of tease out the stocks that they don't like. Okay. And so, um, Basically, when people use their own discretion and pick out the stocks that look scary to them, they vastly underperform not only his system, uh, but even just the S&P 500. And so there's always, yeah, there's always a reason, you know, if a stock is cheap, there's always a reason for you to look at it and go, oh, God, that's crummy. You know, I mean, I I had a lot of uh, oil stuff earlier this year, and you would Mm -hmm. look at that and go, oh, come on. Um, but you can't allow yourself. Uh, you can't allow yourself to override a good system. Yeah. Well, I guess that that's really the nitty gritty details are what I was curious about. Because like, if I'm Daniel, I sit down at the computer in the in the morning, and uh, I'm guessing you have some sort of model that watches the market or looks at stocks, and you know, does it just say this is what you're buying today? Or I mean, do you, is there any part in the process where you could look at it and be like, no, I don't want that? You know, is there any part where your brain has the opportunity to sabotage? the system or have you found a way to eliminate that there's there's no um i mean i guess i guess i could ignore my own rules i mean there's mm-hmm. yeah i mean i could i i could i i do not i do not allow myself to but i mean yes i guess i technically could say here's what the model says but i'm not going to do this and, yeah. and i want i want to be clear too i mean i'm looking at this stuff i say in the book and i mean it uh i think asset managers should work Four days a year. I mean, I don't. Uh, I don't personally. I don't personally get away with that, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah. I look. I look at my models once a month. I make decisions okay. once once a month. This is not. You know, I'm not up at three a.m. checking Chinese soybean futures or anything. I mean, this is very. <laughs> this is very like patient, um, sensible stuff because. Again, I mean, you just you're your own worst enemy when you try and over engineer these things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, it's always been just I'm much simpler than you are. I literally just have two Vanguard funds and I auto invest from my bank account. So my only decision is, is there enough money in that bank account to send to Vanguard every month? Okay, we're good. And then I never look at it. Uh, I'm not sure what Andrew does, but I'm very simplistic about it. I I don't do Uh, anything, Uh, but. Daniel, I'm looking at the, the chapters in your book, and this one chapter just keeps pulling me in. Uh, it's called Risk is Not a Squiggly Line. Um, and I guess my, my perception of it 
is kind of that it's a squiggly line that it that it depends what do you what do you mean by that yeah so um the academic models uh, in finance all use uh, volatility so sort of the ups and downs of the market as a proxy for risk so that is you know they're assumed to sort of be one in the same uh, so what I talk about, first of all, is, I mean, there's more there's more fundamental ways to look at risk, you know, than just is it going up or down. Um, so I talk about bankruptcy risk and, you know, personnel risk and some of those different things. Uh, but then I think even beyond that, <clears throat> I talk about, you know, your risk is not my risk. And I talk about personal benchmarking. There's a um, there's a there's a great study that I talk about in my last book called Personal Benchmark where they were trying to get people away from these volatility-based notions of risk and towards uh, sort of an understanding that risk is different for you than it is for me. And, and basically, risk is the likelihood that you're going to be able to live the life that you want to live. Okay? Mm. So you can, you can change risk by living a more humble life or you know, managing your expenses and things like this. But the study that I love, they were, they were working with low-income savers and they're having a hard time getting these folks who don't make much money to set aside some, you know, to, to, to send that money to Vanguard every month. And so what they did is they, they, they tried rewards, they tried punishments, they tried everything. And then finally, the only thing that worked was showing them a picture of their children uh, before they made an important financial decision. And they found that when people were primed with a picture of their kids, uh, they saved over 200% more per month. So oh. that, yeah. So that, that chapter is really all about developing sort of a nuanced, personalized, behavioral definition of risk uh, and, and using that to inform your investing, but also to motivate you to, you know, to sort of be that catalyst for you to make better decisions. So there's the big tip for this episode. If you have kids, put a picture of your kids wherever you do the banking. Yeah. Boom. What, what do you mean that, uh, like, follow your own benchmark? And I mean, I, I get that, like, I live a different lifestyle than Thomas, so my trajectory will just inherently be different. But are, are you implying that what I've done in the past is, you know, in terms of success or whatever will be pretty much what I will do in the future? Um, so it, the tendency is for people in investment circles to compare their performance relative to a benchmark, right? So the sort of the de facto benchmark for everyone is the S&P 500, because that's what's on your iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. And so right. people, people want to know, you know, how did I perform relative to the S&P 500? Um, there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, if you're working with someone, or even if you're not, um, and you're well-diversified, um, your portfolio is never going to look like the S&P 500, so it's really apples to oranges. Mm. Uh, the, the second thing is, you know, say, um, let's say you're doing pretty well and you got off to an early start and you've been putting money in that Vanguard, you know, in your couple of Vanguard funds uh, from the time you were, you know, 23 or whatever. You're, you have a head start. You don't need to get, you know, 12, 15 percent returns a year. Uh, you don't need to be so balls to the wall with your investing. You know, what you need for your personal benchmark is maybe 6%. So don't take on an inordinate amount of risk uh, when when you don't need those sort of returns to, to live a happy life. So figure yeah. out what's, you know, figure out what's important to you and take a risk that's commensurate with the life you want to live. For me, like what's important to me is uh, send my kids to college 
uh, go to the movies once a week and, you know, have a, have a nice night at Olive Garden. Right. <laughs> so it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm Will, I'm Will Ferrell. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, I don't have a crazy lifestyle, so I don't need to take outsized risks, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to live some life or beat some arbitrary benchmark. I think that's something that's really hard to act upon. Cause I agree, you know, when I think of like, what do I do and how much money do I need for what I do? It's, uh, it's a certain amount, whatever it is, but then I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's very tempting to chase what you believe will be a higher return, even right. if you don't need it. Yeah. 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 It, it absolutely is. And I mean, it's sort of our, our American DNA has us, uh, you know, this culture of wanting to outperform is, is ingrained in us. I, I will now give away the final study of the book. No one should ever go buy it now because you've heard every study now. <laughs> well, it doesn't make you money anyways. So, right? That's right. That's a good point. There's a, there's a study I cite in the book where it talks about the best performing mutual fund of the, uh, of the early aughts. So from 2000 to 2010, the best performing mutual fund like blew the roof off. It was like 18 and a half percent a year. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, 18.5% a half percent a year annualized over that decade. But the average investor in the fund lost money. It's incredible. Eighteen percent a year annualized, and the average investor in the fund lost money because what people did is, when it took off like a rocket ship, people piled in. Well, then yeah. it, t- it tended to mean revert and do worse. Everyone jumped out at the bottom, right? It takes off again. Everyone piles in at the top, uh, rinse and repeat for ten years, and so. That's people uh, n- not understanding this risk is not a squiggly line concept, right? Yeah. Like, n- know your discipline, get in, because even really, um, you know, y- you're only as wealthy as you as you can tolerate the ride. So, I mean, if you mm-hmm. pick the best mutual fund in the world and you can't hang on for the ride, it's you're, you know, you're no better off. Daniel, this makes me feel really good. Because I've been a guest on other financial podcasts before, and they'll talk about like what happened in the market, and uh, then asked me to comment on it, and I'm like, I, I have no idea, and I don't think we've ever talked once about the recent performance of the market on this show. I so. want to change that right now because um, <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to change that right now. Uh, D- Daniel's the one. Um, you know, there, there are uh, there's always exceptions to the rule, right? And you could look at you know uh, one person that I. I, I think is particularly awesome this guy bill gross built pimco and he basically bet that 2008 was going to happen and then it happened and many billions of dollars later um he's a famous man uh and and, and if you read the news everyone's like china china i don't know debt and yeah is, is there any merit to following these things because it works for some people and it if you have nothing Right, you have nothing to lose, but if you have a lot, and and you can perhaps avoid, uh, and I definitely get sucked into this stuff. But if you can avoid it, uh, is isn't it your duty to kind of um, not lose your pants? <laughs> I, I wish I wish people could see your face when you just did that, just delivered that last line. So the um, the. Um, so, so first of all, I want to, I just want to say thank you for giving me the title of my next 
book, which is The Exceptions to the Laws of Wealth. So I'm very excited to write that book, The Exceptions to the Laws of Wealth. So, uh, so okay, so apropos of Bill Gross and people like him who, who put big forecasts out there, right? So um, there, there's a couple of things, and I'll, I'll maybe talk out of both sides of my mouth. So first of all, a gentleman by the name of David Dreeman, uh, asset manager and researcher extraordinaire, who I respect a lot, I did some early work on uh, forecasts. He found that uh, one time in 170, he looked at 8,000 different consensus forecasts and found that one time in 170 were Wall Street consensus forecasts uh, within 5% of the correct answer, the eventual, you know, the eventual result, right? Uh, he found that they had a coin flip chance of even getting directionality right, like did it even go up or down? Oh right? So it's just, it's terrible. I mean, if, if every Wall Street analyst in America went away tomorrow, the world would be no better off. So um, a gentleman by the name of Philip Tetlock uh, also did interesting research on uh, political and stock forecasting. And he found that the more famous a forecaster is, uh, the worse their subsequent forecasts tend to be. Because you look oh. at... You look at someone like a, a John Paulson, right? Or, no, not John Paulson. What's the guy's name? Oh, geez. Biggest, the big short guy. One of the big short guys. He wasn't in the movie. Maybe it was John Paulson. Leonardo DiCaprio? Uh, it was, uh, it was <laughs> Ryan Gosling. No, it, oh, was okay, one okay. Of the, it was one of the guys. I'm, I'm spacing the name now. It was one of the guys who shorted the, <clears throat> shorted the housing market in 2008 and made literally a billion dollars, right? Mm. Made a billion dollars for himself and gave a bunch to Central Park. I think it was John Paulson. Mm. So uh, he makes this correct call. And then a few years later, when the market is up <clears throat> nearly 30%, a couple years later, he's, his fund is down 36%. Why? Wow. Because, so he's underperforming the market by whatever it was, 50 or 60% in a, in a single year. The reason is because people tend to be, people who make big forecasts tend to be perma bears or perma bulls. Mm. And mm. every couple of years, uh, their, their forecast is realized and they look like geniuses, uh, but no one ever calls them on having made that call for the past five years. Right? Yeah, it's just a confirmation <clears throat> bias. Yeah, they kind of ran into one, if you will. Uh -huh. And so then what happens is they often continue to fight that last war uh, and lead people astray all along the way. So uh, with that said, I think Bill Gross is a smart guy. Um, valuations for the U.S. stock market uh, are currently about as high as they have ever been. I mean, we're, in, we're talking like top three or four times in the history of the U.S. market with respect to how expensive... Uh, the broad market is now. So um, as we've talked about before, it's going to mean revert at some point. But, you know, the market mm -hmm. was expensive in 1996, too, really expensive. The market was really expensive in 1996. People were concerned, and it went straight up for another four years. Mm. So um, we can say pretty definitively that the market's expensive. We could even say that probably medium-term, five- to seven-year returns won't be very good. Um, in the U.S. stock market. But what you could say with no degree of certainty, and no one should even try and guess, is when that turn happens. And so that's the yeah. tricky part. That's the tricky part is all these people trying to time that turn and leading people down a bad path. Mm -hmm. 
it kind of makes sense when you so when you become famous for your predictions you kind of turn yourself into a hammer and see everything as a nail well put in the yeah. future that makes sense i liked i'm coming up with more harebrained investment ideas so there uh i'll tell you there's this uh there's this book called the sirens of titan by kurt vonnegut and in that book there is an investment strategy that I want to try as a game on this show. We still haven't done it. I think Andrew and I need to sit down and actually do it. But um, there's a super rich character in the book, and his father got rich by staying in a hotel room for a really long time. He, t- he takes the Gideon Bible out of the drawer, and he opens it to the first page, and he takes the first two words, in the, and then he just goes and finds a company with the same initials, IT, invests in them. And then every day, he takes the next two words and does that, and becomes a millionaire or billionaire through that. So I, I want Andrew and I to like both pick a random book and then just do that <laughs> either through like a game or with like a very small amount of money. But now because of this conversation, I want to also try either an experiment where you do the opposite of what all the wall street people tell you, or where you take a recorder and you record all of your investment anxieties, wake up the next day and do the opposite. Yeah. I would love to see what would happen. If you did well, something like that, do it, doing the opposite would have uh, historically been a pretty sound strategy. I mean, there's a pretty a pretty nice inverse relationship. Oh, so I mean, one of the things that I've done um, with uh, sort of academically is I've developed a, a quantitative measure of greed and fear because mm-hmm. I was um, sort of bummed out by the existing measures of sentiment, and a lot of them are like, oh, we're going to ask some. We're going to ask some people in Michigan what they think about the economy. It's like, who cares? What do they know? So uh, what I. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck Michigan. (laughs) I I did. I did not say that. I love you, Detroit. Um, Yeah. So the uh, what I've done is try to make it more quantitative. Right. And Mm. so, like, if you look at March of 2009, if zero is absolute fear on on my scale and 100 is absolute, you know, sort of irrational exuberance and March of two. March of 2009, my, my metric had us at a five, you know? So, I mean, basically as fearful as you could ever be. Mm-hmm. And if you had invested your money in March of 2009, I mean, you'd made three, 300% now a couple years later. So, I mean, there's really something to that. I'm, I don't know that I'm going to go out and recommend the Bible one, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but, but doing the, doing the ex- exact opposite of what feels right. Isn't a terrible way to go. What's your yeah. greed fear metric at like today? Uh, it's been about in the in the so the valuation I have two I have a valuation metric mm-hmm. and then a greed fear metric. So the greed fear metric's been sort of uh, high average, not not super high because I think there's a lot of people who are um, uh, pretty tentative, and I think the election has us sort of on eggshells a little bit, and this mm-hmm. one maybe even more than most. Uh, so the the sort of irrationality index is what I call it has been pretty uh, moderate, sort of in the middle there. But then the valuation index, which is how is it, how expensive it is the stock market, has been in the high 80th percentile. So if you know you look back over the past 50 years, we'd be like I don't know I haven't looked at it today, but something like 87th percentile over that time. Mm. Interesting stuff. I also don't recommend the Bible method. I just I want to see what happens. I just like pure curiosity. Like how <laughs> funny would it be if it actually worked? I love it. I think you should do it. <laughs> All right, Andrew. We need to we need to pick our books, and I don't know, open Robinhood accounts or something. We should. Well, you already have an account. I don't have a stock investing account. So, anyway, Daniel. So we'll be looking forward to your next book, The Exceptions to the Laws of Wealth. 
But you and, also uh, have like some other <laughs> really awesomely named books. Yeah. Um, so you have Everyone You Love Will Die, which is, of course, a children's book. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're not that great a motivational story. Yes. So I'll, I'll start with the less dramatic of the two. So you're not that great. I've, I've given three, uh, three TEDx talks, which were all very fun. And so the first of my TEDx talks, uh, what's called you're not that great. <clears throat> and it was, it's the one that's done the best. My, my TEDx talks have gotten subsequently less and less popular, which I don't know. What that's <laughs> Everyone gets a little worse than the last I'm getting stupider. So the first one though, was you're not that great. And it did very well. And it got picked up by a lot of folks and, um, yeah, so I just wrote a little book and self-published it. So that was a fun sort of seven, um, sort of applying behavioral science to your life and counterintuitive ways to try and live a happier, more meaningful life. Um, as I was telling you guys before the show, everyone you love will die. I have three kids. I have three three young children. And so uh, one of the ways that I try and connect with them and talk to them about stuff, like, you know, uh, everything from, you know, uh, death to gay marriage to anything they have, you know, God, anything they have questions about, I'll try and write a story or write a little poem about it to make it easier to talk to them about. And so uh, we had a, a, a friend die and I wrote this poem about basically uh, everyone you love will die, but you're here today. And so am I, that's sort of the closing line. And it's all about, it's sort of a silly, uh, the first couple pages are sort of talking about silly, comical, if you will, ways that people might die, you know, getting shocked by an electric eel or something. And then um, at the end, basically the point is, look, you never know when it's your day. So make the most with the people that matter to you. Uh, so ultimately, it's kind of a heartwarming book. I, I was telling you before, my friend Naomi, I published it on Facebook. A lot of people loved it. My friend Naomi illustrated it without me even asking her to. So we said, you know, what the heck, let's throw it on Kickstarter. I uh, threw it on Kickstarter. It was the editor's pick that day, and it got funded in like 12 hours. And so, that's amazing. Um, wow. Yeah. So, everyone, if you go to everyoneyoulovewilldie.com, you can check it out there. Awesome. And if people want to connect with you or follow you on social media, where should they go for that? So, uh, my, my firm is Nocturne Capital, so Nocturne with an E. And then okay. uh, uh, on Twitter, it's at Daniel Crosby. Great. And we'll have those linked up in the show notes. Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, thank you both. Yeah. And guys, thanks so much for listening. If you want to find those show notes, listenmoneymatters.com slash show. you find all the links that we talked about. You can also find all of our favorite money management resources, tools, books, all that kind of stuff, uh, which Daniel's book may make it onto our book library shelf in the near future. You can find all that stuff over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. And you can email us at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com if you have questions. Anything you want to plug, Andrew? Uh, you've been building a zillion things and yeah. we haven't talked in a while. So, uh, go to uh, pro.listenmoneymatters.com. Cool tools we're building. Um, you probably know about them, the community. Uh, as you're listening to this episode, it will still all be free, but not for much longer. So, eat all you can. Get in early. Mm. All right, guys. Thank you guys for listening, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, man. Later, dude. Tell your friends about this show.